Bible and you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you could turn to Judges chapter 10. It's the last uh, week that we're going to be in the book of Judges. We've been in here four weeks. We've looked at, um, uh, this is now our fourth judge that we're looking at. Remember the book of Judges is set in the time when the nation of Israel had gone into the land of Canaan that God had promised them when he promised Abraham to give God, uh, give his people a land. So they went into the land of Canaan. They were supposed to defeat all the people in the land and take it over. And they didn't do that. They allowed some of the people to remain. And so um, they're in the land of Canaan. They don't have a leader um, for their whole nation. And so the the 12 tribes are kind of on their own, living independently. And uh, they find themselves caught in this cycle where they begin to worship the gods of the people around them. They start to live in idolatry and worship those gods. They get involved in uh, really satanic worship. And um, we're going to talk about today some of the things they got involved in, but it's pretty dark, pretty wicked, pretty evil uh, by anybody's standards. And so they live in that and God puts them under oppression. He gives them a king or a ruler who, uh, who conquers them and kind of enslaves them. And, and um, they live, they suffer. And then finally they get enough pain. They cry out for help. They say, God, save us. And so God sends a savior. He raises up a judge or a leader to rescue them. So this is the cycle the nation of Israel is caught in. And the reason we're studying this book is because I know not you, but maybe your neighbor, the person sitting next to you, don't look at them right now, but they might get caught in this same pattern sometimes, right? Where they slip into the temptation to fit into the world we live in. Start focusing on other things instead of God. And pretty soon they're living more like the world than they are like God. Again, I know you don't do this, but maybe your neighbor does. You see it in them, you're like, ah, you're doing. And then it starts to hurt because it always hurts when we start living that way and we belong to God. And then when we've had enough pain and we've had enough of it, we cry out to God, would you help me? Would you save me? And God does. And so we want to learn from the nation of Israel how not to do it. And we can think because of the nature of the things they got involved in, man, we would never do that. But the truth is, Satan's tactics look the same. The world system we live in still doesn't honor God, doesn't follow God, and still tries to pull us to fall in love with the things in the world around us. And so we've been learning from this. And this week we're looking at a different kind of judge. He's a different kind of character. And today's story is a bit of a tragedy. Um, It's definitely something to learn from what not to do. But the judge we're going to look at this week is named Jephthah. And again, we find him in Judges chapter 10 and 11. And we're going to see that the nation of Israel once again enters this pattern of sin. But before we jump into that, I got a question for you. Just wondering, have you ever been tempted to or have you ever tried to make a deal with God, to bargain with God. You know, something like this. God, I promise that I will put money in the plate every week in church for the rest of my life if you'll just save my business. If you'll just keep this financial calamity from coming on me. Let me keep my job. Don't don't let me lose this. If you'll do that for me, I promise I'll give the rest of my life. How about something like this? God, if you would just make that girl fall in love with me, right? 
God, you can control people, right? You can make this happen. If you just make her fall in love with me, I'll quit cussing. I promise I'll be in church every week for the rest of my life. God, if you'll just give me that. Can we make a deal, God? You know, how about God, you give me that promotion. If you just let me get that promotion, man, I really want that. I've been trying for it. God, you know how hard I've been working. If you just let me get that, then uh, I promise that I will acknowledge you before people. I will say I'm a Christian, or at least I'll say I go to Mitchell Brian, right? When, when the situation comes up, I'm gonna stand up for you. I promise I'll do it if you just give me that promotion. I don't know, you've probably never done that, but again, maybe the person sitting next to you has. Sometimes we get tempted to negotiate with God and we think this is how the relationship works. We're gonna see today from Jephthah, this is a big mistake it's the wrong way to think about our relationship with God. It's fallen into the trap of thinking that we can interact with God in a transactional way. And it's really the opposite of what God wants for us and from us. He wants a lot more. And he's interested in a lot more than just transactional relationship. But in our story today, as we jump in, Judges chapter 10, Israel once again sins against God. This chapter, this point in the book of Judges, really the culmination, the climax, if you will, of the whole book. Um, one of the things we've been looking about it as each, um, in each chapter, each judge, really is uh, related to a region or to an uh, area in which a, uh, one of the tribes lives. Remember, there's 12 tribes in Israel. They've all inherited land. God gave each tribe land to occupy. And so right now, because they don't have a, a primary leader, they're living independently. It's kind of like when our country started and we had 13 states, right? And the states were really independent. They had the power. <laughs> Remember when that was the case? And so uh, they didn't really want a federal centralized government, right? And so, um, and so it's not that the nation of Israel didn't want that, but they didn't have it. And they really were <clears throat> independent. Each tribe had its own leadership its own clan leaders, tribal leaders, they had elders, and it really was uh, oriented around family. And so each one of the judges, really what would happen is uh, maybe one or two or three of the tribes would, would fall into the sin of worshiping one of the gods of the people around them. And then, um, and then they would be oppressed by a particular leader, and then God would raise up a judge from among them. And you remember, you know, we looked at Ehud and his battle against... Um, uh, against one of the enemies of God, one of the people groups, and he was from a particular tribe. And so um, the same was true of Deborah. Deborah kind of judged all of Israel, but there also was a particular arena in which and group in which they operated out of. And then um, last week with Gideon was certainly the case. And so um, this point in the book of Judges, we see the climax of Israel's depravity, where the entire nation as a whole, they left God completely. And they started to worship and serve the gods of the people around them. This led to a deep, dark evil that they um, interacted with, as we're going to see today. And the lesson that God kept trying to teach them is the same lesson that we need to learn. And that is that putting your faith in anything other than God leads to suffering. Putting your faith in anything other than God leads to suffering. It's a truth you and I need to understand. We need to drive deep into our hearts and minds because we constantly are tempted to put things 
and put our faith in things other than God. So if you're in the book of Judges, chapter 10, let's read verses 6 through 9 to get the context of the situation. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal, or Baal, and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram, and Sidon, and Moab, and Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites, who began to oppress them that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites east of the Jordan River in the land of the Amorites, that is in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed to the west side of the Jordan and attacked Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. So we're dealing in this particular uh, story today, in this part of the text, we're dealing with the area of Gilead. Gilead is the, was the leader of the tribe. He came from the line of Joseph. Remember, Joseph became um, second in command in Egypt. You remember his story. And it was through him that God saved the people of Israel and got them to Egypt in a time of famine. Well, it was Joseph's descendants that Gilead comes from. And so Gilead is one of the leaders and it's considered the area of Gilead, the leader in the area which Joseph's tribe had settled. But at this time, all of Israel has turned against God. And when we look at these different people groups around and in the land of Canaan where the Israelites lived, there are gods that they worshiped. The gods of the Canaanites were particular the Baal or the Baal and the Ashtoreth. These gods were fertility gods. So they worshiped them to ensure that they had children so their animals were able to reproduce and multiply so that they, their crops uh, pollinated and grew. This was, um, this was all about fertility and the production, the reproduction uh, on the earth. And so the worship of these gods would have involved sexual perversion, involvement in abhorrent sexual practices that they would have to adopt as a lifestyle. They would begin to live this way as a people. It also involved child sacrifice. Usually a firstborn son who was offered and burned on the altar alive as an act of worship to these gods. The Ashtoreth was a fertility god again. Um, it was uh, a pole uh, that was carved in an image represented a female god or goddess. And the worship of this god would have evolved against sexually perverse rites. Then there's the gods of Aram. This was Hadad or Rimmon. It was the god of the storm and a fertility god. Worship would have involved sexual perversion. The gods of Sidon, these were the Phoenician Baal or Baal and Ashtoreth. Worshiping, again, would involve sexual perversion and, again, child sacrifice. These are the gods that Israel worshiped under Ahab, King Ahab, who came along later, maybe you've heard of his story, he married Jezebel. And Jezebel's talked about a lot because of her depth of depravity and wickedness, but she brought the worship of these Phoenician gods into Israel. And you'll remember Elijah fought those gods, or the, the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, defeated them. But you'll remember as they were having their battle, 
about whose God was real, the, the priests of Baal cut themselves, right? Bloodletting. They got into um, a frantic state. Again, demonic worship, satanic worship is involved in all of these deities. It's the source. It came through demonic activity. And so that's part of what they did as a result. Harm, self-harm was always a part of the worship of these gods. The god of Moab was a god named Chemish. And Chemish is going to play into our story today, so you want to remember Chemish. But the worship involved human sacrifice um, by fire. And then the god of Ammon was Moloch. This god required child sacrifice, the burning of a child in sacrifice to the god. And then the Philistia, god of Philistia, which was the Philistines, their god was named Dagon. Dagon was the chief god, considered the oldest. There's a hierarchy of these gods. He was the god of grain and of fish. Philistines uh, occupied primarily the coastal regions, the Mediterranean Sea. And so fishing was a part of their, their occupation, how they provided. And so Dagon was a god of fish, kind of considered a fish god. And the god of grain and worship, again, involved human sacrifice, drinking blood, and other pagan practices. And so the worship of these gods, remember, it's all demonic in nature. It involves human sacrifice in almost every case. And the crazy thing is that the Israelites were drawn to this kind of worship, and it cost them. It cost them their children, their people, in order to have a transactional relationship with these gods so they could get these gods to give them what they wanted. They're willing to give up their children. They're willing to sacrifice people in their tribe in order to gain success, to get wealth, to do well, and to grow as a people group. The problem is the God of the Bible would never ask for or require human sacrifice. God created the people of, the, of earth. He created us, loves us. Does not ask for this kind of sacrifice from us. You might say, well, what about Abraham and Isaac, right? I've read that story and God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So see, there, God's doing the same thing. No, not at all the same thing. God was testing Abraham to see if he was going to trust him. And God did not require, if you know the story, that Abraham actually kill Isaac. It was a test of his faith. God taught the people of Israel to sacrifice animals. So blood was required to cover sin so they would understand the weight of their sin. God did this with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, he killed an animal and made clothes for them. But Satan is always behind the destruction of the human race. And so God actually prohibits this type of worship. In Jeremiah 32, um, verse 35, again, God speaking about the nation of Israel. He says, they have built pagan shrines to Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. And there they sacrificed their sons and daughters to Moloch. I've never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. What an incredible evil causing Judah to sin so greatly. See, God loves us. He loves you. He created the human race. He cares for us. Okay? Now, I've watched, though, the nation of Israel got caught in this, and I've watched people as I've interacted with people throughout my life, some who just don't want to believe in God, 
And so they try to build up arguments against the existence of God. I've watched Christians as they deconstruct their faith or try to find ways to kind of eliminate the rules and restrictions that are there, that have been built up and put in place. Usually a common theme behind all of that is the feeling that following God is limiting. It limits us, limits our experience. Well, God says, I can't do this, this, and this. God is just a killjoy. He's trying to keep us from really doing the things we know and he knows are fun, right? You've never thought that, but maybe the person sitting next to you has. Maybe you know somebody that has. Come on, we're all tempted to think that at times. Like, God, why can't I do that? Come on, is it really that big a deal? What's the problem? Why are you so restrictive? Why are you so limiting? And so I know that we have this attitude, but isn't that the same temptation that Satan said to Eve and Adam? God's trying to withhold something from you. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you're gonna gain knowledge. You're gonna get better. Your life's gonna be enhanced. God's just trying to withhold something from you. And so I see this attitude, this belief that following God is a limiting. But a good God who loves people, who knows that those people live in a world that is sinful, that has evil in it, wouldn't he create rules and guidelines and restrictions to keep those people from being harmed by that sin? Well, of course he would. And of course, we're always gonna complain about it. I mean, my kids thought I was such a restrictive dad, such a killjoy. It's like, didn't want him to touch the hot stove. You know what I mean? Every one of my little kids, they wanted to do it and they got mad when I stopped them, right? And God, why can't I do what all my friends are doing? Well, they're all doing it, you know? They're still mad about some of the things I didn't let them do. <laughs> I just have one of those signs. It has the circle and the line through it. It says whiners, you know? No, look, I mean, come on. We all don't get it at times. Like, why can't I do that, dad? Why can't I do it? Well, the truth is, that good parents and a good God is gonna create limitations to protect his people from harm. Here's what the Bible actually says about God's restrictions, his instructions in Psalm 19, verses seven through 11. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. You wanna find life? You wanna find real joy, real fun in this life? You wanna feel good? Look to the instructions of the Lord. They're perfect. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. You want to look smart? You want to look smarter than you are? Then follow God's instructions, man. You look like a genius at the end of your life. People will wonder how you figured all these things out. How did you avoid all the pitfalls in life, man? Well, I just listened to God. He happens to know. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are right. They bring joy to our heart when we follow them. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are even more desirable than gold, even the finest gold, they are sweeter than honey 
even honey dripping from the comb. They're a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. You want something valuable in this life? Look to the teachings that are found in the scriptures, the words of God, man, their life, their protection, their, their like uh, insulation to you from the effects of the sinful world that we live in. We're gonna be harmed by sin, but if we follow the directions of God, man, we will avoid so much pain and suffering in this life. Augustine, one of the church fathers, I think he lived around 400 BC, or excuse me, AD after Jesus. He was a leader in Northern Africa, one of the leaders in the church. He wrote this about idolatry. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used. Worshiping anything that ought to be used. (coughs) The things that God's given to us in this life to enjoy, to use, to navigate life. Idolatry is when we start to worship them. And he goes on to say, or using anything that ought to be worshiped. When we try to negotiate with God, we try to bargain with God, we're trying to use God to get what we want. It's idolatry. Success, fame, wealth, dreams coming true, love happening, having children to keep my job, to keep my friends, to keep my status. All these things can become things that we worship because we think life is found in them. I'll be happy if. And then we try to use God to get him to give us what we want. Question for you today, have you put anything in front of God in your life? We all are tempted this way and all of us have done it. Just kind of one of those moments to consider based on the book of Judges and what the nation of Israel kept doing. Like, have you put something in front of God where you're worshiping that thing, whatever it might be, instead of really worshiping God, really loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's where life's found. That's where life's found. Um, In our story today, our character Jephthah, he's the judge we're looking at. He has a difficult situation. He's born into a difficult situation. And, uh, and I realize this as we begin to look at his story and what happened to him, that sometimes we value very highly what people or a person or a group of people thinks of us. We value very highly. We care a lot about how people see us, how they perceive us, what they think about us. No one, and I know there's some people say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't believe you. (laughs) You do care what somebody thinks. You may not care about what everybody thinks, and there may be some people you don't care. But come on, we all care what somebody, we care what they think of us. It's part of how we figure out who we are. And so identity, who we are, how we see ourselves, is born out of, in part, how other people view us. And again, you may not care what 99% of the people in the world think, but I guarantee you there's someone you care a lot about what they think of you. Sometimes we can fall into a trap of identity that Jephthah certainly does, where he puts what other people think about him in too high a position. And so the warning for us, the identity trap we want to avoid is, don't let let what others think 
matter more than what God thinks. Don't let what others think matter more than what God thinks. Let's look in Judges chapter 11 and let's get to know Jephthah, our character, our judge for today. Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead, remember that's the region they lived in, that's the tribe he was a part of, descendants of Joseph. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. This guy's an impressive, he's an impressive dude, man. He's powerful. He's strong. He's a warrior. He was a son of Gilead. Wow, he's a son of the chieftain. The, 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 the fella for which, the man for which this region is named. He's a son. He's in line to be a ruler. He's got pedigree. He was a son of Gilead. But his mother was a prostitute. Mm. Gilead's wife also had several sons. When these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You'll not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. I know it's in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure I've seen this movie somewhere. Jephthah has a tough hand dealt to him. I mean, in one hand, he's privileged. In one hand, he's at the top of the heap. He's born to the man who's in charge of the region. The area is named for his father. He's important. He's somebody. He's got status. The problem is he has the right dad, but he has the wrong mom. And so when his father's wife has more children and they grow up they run him off the land you're not going to get any part of this you're not part of this family you're an embarrassment you're a product of our dad's indiscretion you don't make us look good you need to get out of here this led him to a rough life was an outcast rejected by his family we know family wounds hurt. Jephthah had them, and so he gathered a bunch of troublemakers around him, and they caused some trouble. He led a rough life. We know a lot of people that live this life that way. When I was in college, a couple summers, I spent working for a rancher in Montana, and um, he'd inherited the place from his dad. It was a second or third generation ranch, and first summer we worked rebuilding fence because a forest fire burned it and so everything went fine and he had a he had a brother and the two of them kind of ran the place the second summer I came back and I found out that this young <clears throat> younger brother was really adopted into the family and I watched very awkwardly as the the guy I worked for ran off this adopted brother kicked him off the place and he had to go fend for himself it, I don't really know the whole story I was just a I was just, you know, building fence. I wasn't privy to, to all the leadership information, but man, it was awkward and painful to watch. This happens in our world, what happened to Jephthah. It's really not that uncommon. But odd thing happens. Jephthah ends up in the land of Tob. He's got this band of troublemakers around him. And I can imagine they're causing some trouble. And about that time, the Ammonites show up to Gilead and they attack Gilead. They come, enter the land, and they start attacking 
his family, the, the men and the people of Gilead that lived in the region, part of the tribe that lived there, right? And so the elders of Gilead get together and say, we got to do something. We need help here. If there's somebody we can find that'll lead us to victory over the Ammonites, we'll let him be the ruler of our whole land. Now I wonder who we could get to lead us to victory. Ah, how about Jephthah? So they send word to Jephthah. And Jephthah gets whatever it was, the, the letter, the messenger tells him the report. And he goes, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> he sends back word, you just kicked me out. You want anything to do with me? I'm this illegitimate son. You don't even wanna know I exist. And now you want my help? They go, yeah, we, we need your skills. You're a warrior, man, come and help us. And if you do, here's what we'll do for you. We'll make you leader of the whole tribe. Jephthah can't believe his ears. I mean, he has an opportunity here that he cannot get his head around. So he goes back and he meets with them and he makes them repeat the deal in front of everyone. One more time, I need to hear your offer. And they go, yeah, yeah, no. If you lead us to victory, we'll make you, we'll make you uh, chief over all of us. You'll run the whole land. You can't tell me that Jephthah wanted this really bad. He could be reinstated to his family. Not only would he be accepted back in, but he's now the leader. And you know he believed that was his rightful position. He was the strongest. He was the toughest. He was the smartest. He should be leaving. He should be leading the land. He should be in that rightful spot. I wonder who it is that you care an awful lot what they think about you. You care an awful lot what they think. It means a lot to you. It matters to you. It affects who you see yourself as. And I wonder if you'd ever be tempted to compromise in an area in order to get their approval. I wonder if you'd be willing to maybe do something you know isn't right just to get them to like you. Now I know it hasn't been since junior high that you really felt that way, right? None of us adults still wrestle with being accepted or liked by groups of people. No, that was junior high stuff, way beyond that, right? Yeah, not so much. We still struggle with it. It was tough in junior high, and we hoped we could move beyond that, but it's still real. We spend a lot of money. We do a lot of things to be accepted in this world, to be looked at in a certain way successful, admired by the people that we want their approval. Sometimes it is our family. Sometimes it's somebody else. Jephthah was living out of a desire to be accepted by his family. And he wanted this really, really bad. In fact, he wanted it so bad that he ends up doing something he doesn't have to do. He steps into a blunder of negotiation in a way, he didn't have to do it. Nobody asked him to do it, but he did it anyway, and it cost him dearly. If we fall into this trap, the same thing can happen to us. We end up trying to negotiate when negotiation isn't required. We try to get God to do what we want him to do for us so we can get what we want when really he wants to give us what we really need. 
the pains that come in life and certainly family hurts and, and whatever hurts we pick up as we go through life, the rejection of a group of people being treated the wrong way, these things create wounds in us and oftentimes we live out of them. We try to compensate for them. Uh, we try to make them go away. But I want to tell you, and, and there's somebody needs to hear this this morning, that those hurts, wherever they came from, you can't fix them by acquiring more stuff, by gaining more things, by getting more positions, you can't make those hurts go away. There's only one answer to getting the healing that you really need. And that is a personal relationship with God. And that can only come through Jesus Christ. See, God offers us forgiveness of our sins. It's the greatest healing that we could ever experience. Secondly, Jesus says, if you put your trust in me, if you'll put your trust in me, then the Holy Spirit will come to dwell within you, the Spirit of God. Secondly, he says, I'm gonna come to dwell within you and God the Father will come to dwell within you. We're gonna come and set up house in your life. We're gonna be there to walk with you in a personal, intimate way. And yet, if we don't enter that relationship with God, if we don't put our trust in Jesus, and find that forgiveness and find that relationship with God, we can end up continuing to play a transactional game with God, thinking that that's how it works. And so I just want to give this warning from judges and from Jephthah today to make sure you might be a God-fearing person. You might say, no, no, I respect God a lot and I try to live the right way. That's not the answer to the test when you stand before God. Jesus is gonna to say to a lot of people who say, we did the right things. Jesus, we, we honored you, we followed you, we, we were really good people. And he's gonna say, I did, yeah, but I, I don't know you. I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. So I just wanna urge you and challenge you and encourage you to make sure your relationship with God is real, not just transactional. Judges 11, 29 um, Jephthah agrees to this, this uh, arrangement. He says, I'm gonna, of course, I'm gonna do this. I want this so bad. I can't believe I got this opportunity. I've been hoping for this. In fact, it's beyond anything I could have hoped for. I'm gonna get my life back. I'm gonna get everything back. I'll do anything to get this. And so he comes back and he says, I'll go to war. I'll fight. I'll lead you to victory. Now, first of all, he tries a peaceful agreement. He writes to the Ammonites. He, he tries to negotiate with them to come up with a peaceful agreement, avoid war. They, of course, ignore his pleas, and so war is the only option. Judges 11, verse 29, at that time, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. In all the other judges we've looked at, God chose them, in part because they had a fear of God, they had a, uh, they had a desire for God, they were people that um, honored God. Jephthah's not one of those guys. <laughs> he was chosen by his tribe, who he was outcast from, they chose him because of his skills as a warrior. And so this verse tells us that, in fact, God was involved. And so the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Now, when the Spirit of the Lord came on somebody in the Old Testament, it didn't mean they all, kind of, they all of a sudden became godly in their behavior. It didn't mean all of a sudden their character was good. But the Spirit of the Lord came on them for empowerment to accomplish a mission. And so the Spirit of God comes on Jephthah to accomplish this mission. God's gonna lead the people of Israel to victory using him. And so he went through the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mitzpah. 
and Gilead. And from there, he led an army against the Ammonites. Now, here's where it gets weird. Verse 30, it says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, If you give me victory over the Ammonites, let's make a deal, God. Let's negotiate. If you'll give me this victory, I need this really bad. I have to win this battle. If you give me the victory over the Ammonites, verse 31, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. What an insane thing to do. Bible students, pastors, teachers kind of rack their brains over why in the world Jephthah made a vow to God. Why did he do this? And he offers up the first thing to come out of his house. Should have been the first person to come out of his house. What was his pet dog going around? No, it was going to be a person walk out. He knew that. He makes a vow before God. Did God ask him to make a vow? Was this required by God? No. And to sacrifice a human being? No, man. That isn't anything God would have wanted. In fact, God was against that and told Israel so. So why in the world does Jephthah, a man who's called and empowered by God to lead Israel to victory, and he plays this? Because he wanted it too bad. It had to work. And he had become influenced. This is Pastor John's opinion. He had become influenced by the worship of the gods of the people around him idolatry, the worship of the satanic gods. And guess what they required? If they were going to give you what you wanted, you're going to have to pay up. It's going to cost you someone you love. And so Jephthah, having lost sight of who the real God was, had involved himself in the worship of the gods around him, so much so that he lost track of how it worked. He didn't know God. And so he thought he needed to do with God play the same game that he'd had to play his whole life. He watched this go on. If you want something from God, here's what you got to do. You want good crops? You sacrifice somebody. You want to have children? You sacrifice a child. You want to have your animals multiply? You sacrifice. This was the nature of the worship that he had seen. Listen, sounds silly. This is ridiculous. How could this happen? What a ridiculous thing. I would never do that. Well, I don't know. Uh, You got a business? You want to make money? What do you have to do? Transactions you got to make. There's things you got to do to make it in this world. And everything in a capitalistic society, which we love, everything's transactional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We can get to thinking that that's how it works because that's what we see. Jephthah fell into this trap. Jesus taught in Matthew 7 how we're supposed to go to the one true God to bring our requests. Here's how we do it. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, keep on asking and, if, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open. He goes, listen, there's a real God who loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Go and ask him for the stuff you want, the things you need. 
the things you think you need. Now there's times, just like in my home, when my kids were coming up, they asked for something, I'm like, no. God might say no sometimes. It's okay. He has your best at heart. Sometimes we think we need things we don't, right? But the truth is, we keep going to God, keep asking God. That's gonna build the relationship between us and him. This is what Jesus was after. If you have a relationship with God and you know God, you trust him with your requests. And you discover in the process of asking what it is that you really need. You get to know him. Playing a transactional game will only get us in trouble. Jephthah made this vow before God. He goes off to war, sure enough, he wins. When he returns, he's coming up to the house after the victory. And who comes out of the house? His one and only daughter walks out of the door. Now, he could have called it off. This isn't Chemish that he was worshiping. It was the one true God who did not require sacrifice, but told his daughter, and she said, yeah, if you made a vow to God, you got to keep it, Dad. This is how we worship. (laughs) This is what we do. It's not unethical. It's not wrong. This is who we are because they had become like the people around them. They'd been so indoctrinated by the world they lived in, they didn't know the difference. And so sadly, the tragedy of the story is that Jephthah offers his daughter on the altar to a God that didn't ask for that, didn't require that, didn't want that. Guys, we can get caught in the same trap living in the world we live in, so indoctrinated the ways of the world, we lose sight of who God is and who he's called us to be. I just wanna call us out of the world we live in. We serve a God that's above all things, He doesn't try to control your life. He doesn't need power and control to feel good about himself. He's trying to help you by giving limitations and restrictions. Go to him, listen to him. That's where life is found. We get indoctrinated the world we live in and subtly, slowly, we can find ourselves in a place where we're living a transactional relationship with God instead of a loving, intimate relationship with him because we know him. God doesn't want your stuff. (laughs) He doesn't want your things, man. He wants your heart. He wants you. Let's repent of the transactional game we play with God. Let's go to him because we love him, because we want to be with him, because we want to know him. God, would you help us as we live in a sinful world and we're influenced by the things around us? And if we're not careful pretty soon, it's just how we see life going and we think you're the same as everybody else. You just want something from us. And if you're going to give us something good, it's going to cost us. God, we just repent of that. We don't don't have anything that you need. You're all sufficient. You're the giver. You're the only one that can give. God, I pray that you'd help us to walk in surrender to you, to walk in relationship with you. Not go to you for what you can do for us, but just to be with you so we can experience what it means to live out of our true identity, which is a son or a daughter of the Most High God. We pray this in Jesus' name.